You're listening to Food for the Future on 980CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. Today, we return to the monthly series, City Farming, addressing new ways to think about food in urban settings. This show will discuss London's urban agriculture strategy and getting our gardens ready for spring. It's my pleasure to introduce Skylar Frankie, Executive Director at the London Environmental Network. Welcome, Skylar. Thanks for having me this morning. Really a great pleasure to have you here. Skylar, what is the London Environmental Network and what does it do? Yeah, it's an environmental charity based in the city of London, Ontario, and we support um, Londoners in trying to live a more green lifestyle. Our mission is to try and see London as one of the greenest and most resilient cities in Canada. So it's a bit of a lofty goal, but we run a bunch of different programs that try to make that happen. So we work with business, we work with government and individuals to to try and reduce emissions, waste and water um, and get them to act more environmentally friendly. Wow, great mission. And I, I know there's a lot of Londoners that really agree with that being one of the greenest cities that there is around. So lots of work to do. And this shows about food for the future. So looking at uh, across the continuum of participants and uh, players and interests of many, many people that contribute to a flourishing food system, we wanted to have the City of London on to talk about the urban agriculture strategy. Now, it was developed in 2017 with the support of the community, but it's a very interesting document. And I would encourage people to have a look at that because it is multifaceted and it's London specific. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the London urban agriculture strategy is about? Definitely. Yeah. And I'd say, so the London Environmental Network is one of many environmental groups in the city that cares about urban ag and food security. So there are many groups involved in in developing the urban ag strategy, but it was primarily led by the city of London and a contractor group called Evergreen, um, but with significant consultation and development and input of the local urban agriculture community. Um, And this strategy really is intended to try and guide London towards um, becoming more Um, supportive of having urban agriculture within the city. Many cities across Canada, unfortunately, over the last, you know, 200 years developed to really make like farmland outside of the city and, you know, city proper just being where you like live and go to work. Um, And this division has made it really hard for people to grow food in their backyards and in the community because it actually violates often a lot of different bylaws. So the strategy was intended to try and remove these barriers so that people have access to land for production. They have ways that they can distribute the food um, all within the city. So we're not entirely reliant on the food outside of the city. I think that's a really great initiative. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the disappearing farmland and how um, our green space as a nation, but also globally, is starting to um, feel the pressures of expansion. And so revitalizing urban green land. Uh, I know Urban Roots we had on the show are doing fantastic things with uh, space that was not being used anymore. And also a lot of uh, master gardeners and other gardeners we've had on the show really, really interested in um, reconnecting to sort of human nature through nature, which is, you know, working their soil and planting a few things. And even if that's just a windowsill, where you plant basil or something like that, that we can all participate in the growing process. And I think that is part of food for the future, that thinking about being a participant in our food 
system and, and not just a consumer, although that's an important piece too. So you mentioned that there was a process to create the urban agricultural strategy. How was it developed? Yeah, it took a little while. So I think it's about a year or two. Um, again, with the city and Evergreen kind of leading, it was based on some of the work that the Middlesex London Food Policy Council did in creating the community food assessment, which assessed, you know, what areas of the city are food deserts and, and how can we ensure that everyone has access to fresh, healthy food. So based on that food assessment, the city um, hired Evergreen as a consultant to help develop the strategy we did um, as like the community. So again, from the London Environmental Network's perspective, we participated in a couple different um, design charades and discussions uh, with other community members about what were the barriers. So that process really helped develop the five different chapters of the um, strategy, which is processing, distribution, food loss and recovery, education, and then connections. And um, all of those were developed in conjunction with the city and the community kind of identifying those as key areas and key, mostly key barriers. It was a lot of like, how can we make sure this, the growing of food is accessible to everyone in the city? Um, so those action areas came from, from those discussions. So it was very organic, no pun intended, um, yeah. in that it emerged from the themes of the voices of people in the city of London. There wasn't an exterior framework that was created somewhere else or in an academic setting that we applied. It really grew from the voices of Londoners. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. And so then what's the basic purpose of the strategy? You gave us sort of a very quick description in your opening remarks, but what are we really going for with the urban agriculture strategy in London? Yeah, I'd say the, the very top level um, purpose of the strategy is to try and remove these barriers that, that make urban agriculture inaccessible in our community. But that looks like a variety of different things. So one of the barriers we've noticed a lot is bylaws. So, um, for example, one of the bylaws is um, people weren't able to sell food that they grew on their land um, more than once a year or no, I think it's four times a year because it violated a... Um, uh, what do you call it, a, f a flea market or like a farmer's market bylaw. Okay. So they did change it where now people are allowed to have um, essentially what they call yard sales. So they can sell the produce from their yard up to 20 times a year. Um, so they had to change that bylaw because it was like people could have gotten in trouble with the city if somebody reported it. So that, again, was identified through this whole process, through the strategy. People are saying, I'd like to sell some, you know, some spinach that I grew on my yard to my neighbors, but they're not allowed to. Um, so that was resolved. And then the other thing I'd say for the purpose of the strategy is identifying who is responsible for each area. So, um, again, the city has a lot of power, but they're not responsible for 100% of the strategy. And if you look through strategy, you can see there's actually sections where the community is going to take the leadership role. Mm -hmm. So, again, to your point, like creating urban farms, um, Urban Roots has uh, now created two urban farms. So that's more of a community led initiative. I think that's a nice balance that some of the things the city are responsible for leadership in, i.e. moving forward and achieving outcomes, and other things are still very much more community driven. So there is, I think, a balance of um, skills and expertise, and I think we'll probably have the really the best model with that. And um, one of the things that I noticed in the urban agriculture strategy was a particular emphasis on foodscaping. And what is foodscaping? 
Yeah, it's really making the production of food visible within everyday life in the city. So now, you know, when you're walking through your streets, you might just notice some trees and grass and people's houses. But the idea of foodscaping is that food is supposed to be everywhere. Um, so it could be also referred to as edible landscaping, but it is a way that people can um, use multiple access points. So front yards, backyards, boulevards, um, parks when allowed to, to use the public realm for food production. Um, for example, on my front lawn, I have two raised garden beds. And when you walk down my street, no one else does. But my like veggies are super visible in the spring, summer and fall. Um, and they're often a discussion point, but they're also a really great use of just grass space. Uh, and so instead of having grass, I actually get to have like kale and peppers and tomatoes. So very visible. Really, really interesting. And I, I don't know if the word is a play on we think of landscaping and we know what that is, but foodscaping is. Um, it's almost like returning to our roots. When you see some older properties, they almost always had an apple tree or a pear tree um, and other evidence that food was actually grown on the land by the people that lived there. It is actually beautiful. There's nothing more pretty than I think apple blossoms in the spring and, you know, those shiny red apples in the fall and, you know, pumpkins kind of growing, although they can get away on you as vines and, and start growing in places that you know, my pumpkin get here. Yeah. And then of course our little critters are very helpful in spreading seeds to very unlikely, uh, and surprising locations, but it's all part of the fun, I think in growing some of your own food. So I'm just wondering, Skylar, do you have any tips or ideas how households can participate in foodscaping and, and what might be a good way to get started? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be big. So um, for example, again, in my front yard, um, a couple years ago, I have like this one little section that I used to plant um, annuals, so annual flowers. And then now I'm moving away from that because one, they're not native and, and they're just mostly for ornamental purposes. So they don't like provide a pollinator benefit or a food benefit. So that one section of my front lawn, I just did tomato plants in the last couple of years. So it's, it's not like closed in, they're in cages, like their own tomato cages, but um, I planted like three or four in this one section that usually would just be like landscape to look to look pretty. Um, and I still think they look pretty. I maintain the tomato plants, but I would say people can just choose to plant a couple edible plants instead of these ornamental ones, wherever they have space in their yard. That's really interesting. Next week on the show, we're having uh, Divi, the CEO of Food Fund Inc., who is um, uh, recovering imperfect and surplus produce. And so in part of his show, we're talking about redefining what perfect is. And you had talked about, you know, the annuals may be pretty and, and I love annuals as much as anyone else. However, if there is an opportunity to plant tomato plants, as you said, they can be beautiful too, using some of the basic principles of design. So if you plant three in a row and you had said you've got support for them to climb on, you still have that repetition and beauty and something very unique, I think. And, um, it's a great way to, uh, you know, just participate in the seasons and contribute to urban agriculture and food security. And you had mentioned tomatoes, and I can't think of anything that, you, you know, makes me salivate more than the idea of a vine picked fresh mm. tomato on a sunny summer day. Isn't that a beautiful image as we look outside? It's so yeah. snowy. I, I better get some tomato plants going and contribute my, uh, my part to the urban ag in London and also foodscaping. After the break, we'll talk about garden planning for spring with Skylar Frankie, Executive Director of the London Environmental Network. This is Food for the Future, and I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, Home Economist. Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. 
We're speaking with Skylar Frankie from the London Environmental Network about preparing our gardens for spring. Skylar, there's snow on the ground, but it's a great time to start to plan for the upcoming season. And what are some key activities that gardeners can start to organize now? Lots, lots of things they can do. Um, I know the most like stalwart gardeners are already, they've already started their planning. They've probably been doing it for a couple of weeks, but uh, winter is a really great time to think about what you want to see in your garden in the spring. So mapping out where you want to put your vegetables or your foodscaping, if you're going to try that this year um, and making sure that you're, you know, planting them with companion plants. So for example, like tomato and basil go really well together. Um, you can also think about rotating them from the previous year. So sometimes, you know, if you have the same plant in the same bed for a couple of years, it uses all the nutrients or it might leave a bit of a blight. So wanting to rotate those around, um, of course, ordering seeds. So lots of places now you can get like catalog or order online. Uh, and then in like March ish, people could start even, uh, starting some seeds inside like onions or peppers to get a jump start. So Lots of things for people to do, but I find it's mostly, yeah, planning. I have, I like to start with like a little um, blank piece of paper and sketching out what I want in my beds and sketching out the, the distance between the rows. So I'm, I'm doing a bit of that right now myself. Okay. So some space planning on what will go where and reflecting on if you have your records from the previous year, can remember what you planted where to rotate the crops, but also research what grows together. And it's really interesting that I've kind of heard it. It's not my idea, but I have heard what grows together goes together. And you had mentioned tomato and basil and they actually do taste delicious. Or you think of, you know, potato and leek soup, or they kind of grow together. So it's interesting not to only to think about what's going to go where, but how you want to use it once it's actually grown uh, for versatility and what, uh, what can go together. So in an upcoming show, we're going to discuss backyard sheds and other structures that support gardening for now. What advice do you have for listeners who may want to add or expand structures to support their gardening? Mm -hmm. I think it kind of depends on what people need. So it depends on what space you have and what you're growing. Uh, for example, I added some trellises to my garden last year because I planted cucumelon and cucumber and they like to sprawl. So they will sprawl just across your garden. But if you want to actually be able to see them and harvest them properly, you want to put up a trellis so that they can climb up and all around. Um, so trellises are a really great way to do it. Um, you can either build one, you can buy them. They're at most garden centers. Um, and then also we have chicken wire that surrounds our rain beds, uh, just to prevent squirrels and chipmunks from getting in. And those actually sometimes will act as trellises as well. So we kind of did it DIY. Um, we had some like wood in the backyard, um, from the previous owners of the house that we built like the four corners of, and then, and then, um, got some chicken wire to put around that, the beds. But yeah, I kind of, it depends on what you're growing and what you need. It doesn't have to be too complex. And as always, for the environmental purposes, we encourage people to, to use what they have if that's possible. Right. So lots of planning then as well about the structure. So if you're going to be building some trellises uh, or using, as you said, some chicken wire in a raised bed and even just sourcing your materials and making sure if you do have things that you need that you don't already have, that starting to think about where you'll get those and, and the best way to put it all together. Skylar, um, we've talked about trellises and raised beds. When do listeners need to start thinking about contacting the city? What kind of uh, sheds or um, other structures to support gardens? That, do we need to start to think about the city and possible permits or bylaws or any other considerations? 
Yeah, I would say if they are larger in nature, so if you're putting in a greenhouse or um, a large permanent shed, the city might, you might be required to get a permit from the city. Uh, I know impermanent, imperm, impermanent structures, so um, I've seen like raised hoop houses, but you can take down the plastic at the end of the season, so it's not a permanent structure. Those are fine, the city doesn't really need to approve those, um, but it's more of those permanent structures. So I'd say if people are really, you know, they want to dive in and 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 spend some money on a permanent uh, greenhouse. It would be good for them to contact the city and just ask if they have to get a permit for that. Okay, that's that's really good advice. And uh, speaking of planning ahead and some of the uh, devices or structures that we need in keeping with the environmental theme of the show and food for the future is collecting rainwater is a great way to conserve water, but the right equipment is needed. It's not always as easy as we'll put out a barrel, although that is one way. Um, And as we plan our gardens and activities for the upcoming season, what equipment should we think about if we want to collect rainwater? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just put in a rain barrel actually last year. Um, So just one side of our house, we we connected, disconnected the downspout and then connected it to the rain barrel. Uh, And it filled up like super quick. And we used that all summer to to water the the two front garden beds. Um, The couple things I'd say about rainwater collection is for the winter, you definitely want to remove it and store it so it doesn't get water inside of the rain barrel, whatever barrel you're using, um, and then crack. So we have ours in the basement right now. And the other thing is you want to make sure that the downspouts, you have um, a way to either reconnect them to the existing infrastructure or like a new downspout uh, pipe to divert the water because um, I bought too short of a one and it started to, like the water started to kind of pool um, around the corner of our house and, okay. and leap into our, our cellar. So you definitely okay. want to make sure you've got, you've got stuff that will direct the water away from your house uh, in the winter season. Okay, so it comes back to design again, thinking about the length of that downspout, the um, where you're going to have the actual spout sort of drain the water away from the house and from the roof. So something else to think about. So that's a, that's a really, really great tip. And another thing about planning for spring, uh, Skylar, in our contribution to foodscaping, which is uh, adding food more prevalently to the green space or growing space we have available to us. In the past, there's been seed exchanges uh, that at various libraries and community centers. And will this happen this year? Is it too early for me to ask that question? Um, I am not positive it's going to happen, but I do know the London Master or Middlesex Master Gardeners are planning to do a CD Saturday, but they're planning to do it in April this time. Okay. Um, and they always have a seed exchange at CD Saturday. So I know at least one seed exchange will happen, but uh, I think that we'll probably see some seed or plant exchanges at some libraries in like March and April. So I'd say stay tuned to the city's websites and the library websites. Okay, more news coming there. I I always think they're so fun. It just builds community, you know, sharing seeds. It's kind of like sharing a meal, but sort of early in the process. And it really, I think, builds community. And also you get some really great seeds with recommendations on how to grow it. So people haven't, they don't have to learn their own mistakes with the seeds. The person that they get it from on in the exchange can say, here's a tip, you know, it doesn't like water that much, or here's what we've found or something about soil testing or soil composition. So it's really, really interesting. Um, also planning for spring, one of the things in the, um, urban agriculture strategy is, uh, attracting pollinators. So primarily bees, and that's really important, not only for garden success, but just general biodiversity and what plants help attract bees that we could start to think about in our planning for gardens. 
Mm, yes, I always recommend people plant native plants. Um, so there's a lot of great nurseries locally that now have a section that's devoted to, to native plants. And, and these types of plants are so good for pollinators, especially local uh, pollinators that are, you know, from the, the region, not necessarily um, European honeybees, but they do usually like the native plants too. So it's like a double bonus. Uh, my favorite one that I planted last year is bee balm. Um, and that one, like it, pretty much if you're sitting close to it, you couldn't, all you heard is this little buzz because so the many. whole, yeah, all the, all the pollinators and all the bees were just like humming around those, those flowers. So well-named then. Skylar, what's your favorite thing to grow? Probably kale. I know it's super basic, but pretty much it gets going and you don't have to do a whole lot. I'm a bit of a lazy gardener, so I don't like to weed too much or have to like constantly baby the plants. So kale grows, I make kale chips, I make kale salad, I put into smoothies. Um, so it's just very easy and delicious and it, it lasts like the whole season. I'll do it in spring and like the plants will go pretty much the whole year. So kale is my favorite probably. Really great. And it's very nutritious. I know it's an incredible source of vitamin K1 and many other things. Skylar, thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. I learned a lot and I can't wait to start planning what I'm going to grow this spring. Thanks for having me and yeah, happy planning. Thank you. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking with Skylar Frankie from the London Environmental Network. Each week, we leave you with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about. What could you plant for spring? Something to do. Go to the City of London's website and search for the Urban Agriculture Strategy to find out more about growing food in our city. Next week on the show, we return to the series Back to the Future. We'll talk about the pressures farmers face with Dave Bolton, past chair of the Middlesex Federation of Agriculture. I'm your host, Peggy O'Neill, Home Economist, and you've been listening to the weekly show, Food for the Future. Thank you to our platinum-level sponsors, Burnbray Farms, Eggs for Life, and the Middlesex London Food Policy Council. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday at 8.30 on 980 CFPL and 980 CFPL.ca.